Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkness into, and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a binding flash, he destroys the stronghold, and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you might live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says, there will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Who do you long for? Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a fire, like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father, we just thank you that you are a God of justice and um, justice will prevail. Father, we just pray that in all of Howard's preparation, your spirit will be talking to us as a church and your spirit will be talking to us as individuals. And Father, we just ask that you would be putting a um, cry of justice in each and every one of our hearts. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. On the 28th of August, 1963, 250,000 people gathered. It was the largest gathering in the United States of America in history. And wearied from living under consistent death threat after death threat after death threat, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and began to speak like an Old Testament prophet. He even quoted Amos chapter 5, verse 24, Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. He was reading from his message, but part of the way through as he was speaking, he felt prompted to turn away from his notes, almost to hear from God for heaven sent words, which became a rallying cry against oppression and injustice everywhere. I have a dream, he said. And he kept saying it, I have a dream, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my four little children will live in a country that does not judge them by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, welcome to Westminster Chapel. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Howard. We're in a series, as you heard already, called Heart Cry, journeying after God's own heart through prayer. And today we're talking about the cry for justice. And before we get into that, I just want to take note that Amanda is here for the first time at Westminster Chapel signing. And I think we should just give her a round of applause and encourage her. Um, doing a fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's not easy signing, and it's not easy signing for people like me, um, as you know. <laughs> um, so what would Martin Luther King, what would King and Amos say to 21st century Londoners? What would they say? Would they challenge? Would they speak up about ongoing white privilege? Would they challenge economic injustice, human trafficking, our abuse of the planet that we have been gifted? Would they stand up to some of the problems of breakdown in the family, resulting in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children needing adoption and fostering in our nation? Would they speak out against persecuted believers of all faiths around the world? Would they speak out against abortion? Not simply done for the to preserve, to save the life of the mother or the child, but done mostly on demand for our own personal convenience. Now, I just want to step back for a moment and say, if, if you're involved in any of those things, the first word for you would be there's grace, there's love, there's acceptance in God. I'm going to say more about that throughout this message. But we are a community of sinners here Saved by the grace of God. <laughs> That's who we are. But I believe that King and Amos would strongly challenge those issues. Why? Because God cares about injustice. 
God cares if you are sexually abused. God cares if you are the victim of someone else's selfishness. You know, the divine bench is not empty. Our cries for justice don't just sort of echo out into some distant void in total kind of uselessness of that expression. No, there has been hardwired into every one of us a cry that things are not the way that they should be in this world. And it's a reflection of the God who's made us, whose absolute standards of righteousness he's infused into our DNA, our nature. God cares about injustice. Even to accuse God of being unjust is by definition to accept his existence and to use his very moral absolutes to attack him with God is the author of justice. God cares about justice. God is on the side of every victim of injustice. And that is the first word of this prophecy from a man called Amos. That's how the book begins with God's roar like a lion against injustice. It's one of the minor prophets, but its message is not minor. It was written 750 years before Jesus was born. And it was written by a man called Amos. Who was Amos? Well, he was a shepherd farmer, a shepherd rather, and a fruit farmer. He was a nobody. Comes out from nowhere. Just an unheard of guy. Suddenly he's prominent. Isn't that the way God works? Have you noticed that? God likes to use nobodies. He takes a little shepherd boy the kind of runt of the litter of his family, forgotten about, thought to be nothing by his own dad. And he brings him in and he anoints him and he uses him to defeat the the giant Goliath and to become the great leader of Israel, King David. Or he takes a murderer, Moses, and through time grows him to be a great leader of the Exodus, bringing the people out of slavery into freedom. He takes uneducated fishermen, absolute nothings in the society of Israel. And through relationship with Jesus, they become unbelievably brilliant leaders who would turn the world upside down. God is in the business of using nobodies and making them somebodies. What could he do with your life? If you surrender to him, what what might he do? You might feel like you're nothing special. You can't make a difference. I tell you, you're wrong. You can. God takes dyslexic, melancholic, moody me, (laughs) who is an absolute nobody, who sat... I think we've even removed it about where Claudio was. There used to be a pew there (laughs) at the back of the church. Sat there. No one noticed me. I was just sat there. Nobody. And here I am. Through the supernatural work of God, I tell you, he wants to use you. And he wants to use you in the area of justice. Justice. Amos was from Tekoa. It's a place 10 miles south of Jerusalem. You can see it on the map here, and we'll get to a few place names in a minute. So he was basically a southerner, having the awkward job of going to the northerners to tell them where they were getting it wrong. (laughs) 
You see, what had happened, there'd been this schism in the people of God. They were 12 tribes, and the 10 tribes uh, towards the north had become their own independent state called Israel. They sort of clubbed together, broke off from Judah and Benjamin down in the south, and they said, we want to be separate from them. We want to set up our own counterfeit religious system. And Amos is going to tell them, you've got it wrong. Just think for a moment of what it would feel like if you are an ardent Brexiteer and you have gone into a room of Remainers and you've got to tell them that they've got it wrong. Maybe I should have done that the other way around (laughs) for some of you to relate to. But you get the point. It's awkward. This is his prophecy. So how does he begin? Well, he begins by challenging all the surrounding nations around Israel. This is a genius God-given strategy because it's great to build friendships with others around common ground of what we complain about. We love this in Britain. We are great at moaning. You build friendships about common things still people to moan about. It's not good, but we do it. And this is what's happening as Amos begins. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four. That's a kind of odd kind of historic cultural phrase that basically means for the full measure, for the consistent, persistent uh, uh, sin that you've been committing, God's wrath, his judgment's going to come. Now, Israel in the north who are hearing this from Amos, the southerner, they are like, yes, he's saying those Damascans are going down. Come on. Yes, we love this guy. And he keeps going. Gaza, Tyre, they're all in trouble. They're all awful. God's going to judge them. And you can see this, the smiles on, on the Israelites' faces. This is fantastic. And he brings it on. Now, Edom, Amnon, Moab. And they're, they're just, they're so happy at this point. And then he says, for three sins of Judah, the southerners who we hate, our rivals. Wow, this is wonderful news. They're about to party and to celebrate what's going on. And then he says, chapter 2, verse 6, for three sins of Israel, you who I'm talking to, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Oh, you bet they're not smiling anymore. <laughs> they, are, they are angry. I mean, they are seriously angry. He's brought them in and now, boom, he's hit them that this whole message is really about you. You see, we all want to see justice done to others, very rarely ever to ourselves. And yet we have all committed injustice. Sometimes we know about it. Sometimes we notice because it actually hurts us. There's a consequence which is damaging to us. Or we can see the pain that we cause other people. Or maybe we're even sensitive enough to note that we've grieved the heart of God by what we've done. But often we're blind to that. We don't notice. We're so sort of fixated with our own personal wants and needs. We don't notice the kind of also the, the domino effect of our injustice that comes kind of boom, 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 all the way to over here to a country in Africa. Africa, like the Congo, where there is a child forced into slavery to labor in a mine to get the cobalt out so we can enjoy our mobile phones. Yeah. We live in a world where we are understandably concerned about the coronavirus. It's killed just over, I think it's like 2,700 people around the world. I note that the flu epidemic that comes every year already has killed 75,000 people in the same amount of time. 
then I also note that every single day, 13,861 people die of starvation on our planet. And God cares. God cares about injustice. So how do we become more like Amos and less like Israel? How can we really pray for justice? Amos prays a wonderful prayer in chapter 7. How can our hearts grow to beat in time with God's on this issue? Well, I think Amos chapter 5 is a brilliant place to start. And Amos, if you look carefully in chapter 5, you'll see in verse 4 that he actually introduces the very structure of how he's unpacking this whole chapter there. And he does it around three shrines that he mentions, Bethel, Gilgal, and, and Bathsheba. These are three places that Israel, this group of northerners, were pilgrimaging down to meet with, but more out of ritual rather than real relationship seeking with God. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. The first shrine is Bethel. Seek God. Pray for supernatural heart transformation. We need to do that because our hearts grow hard. They become cold over time. Familiarity with injustice breeds indifference to injustice. I know this myself. We moved two years ago from Croydon up into Westminster. And for the first time, our daughter is now six years old, was seeing um, on her commute to her local schools, especially um, the homeless, the rough sleepers all over Victoria, often begging and asking for money. But it moved her, and she would ask us questions about it. At our big Bible camp, we go down to an Exeter in West Point. She actually wanted to buy a book about praying for the homeless, for the poor. On one journey to school, I'm sad to say that we actually walked past somebody who died on Victoria Street, sleeping rough on our patch. She notices these things. But for me, I have walked in and out of this area to work for, for year after year, kind of grown indifferent. This is just, it's just a reality. There's nothing you can do about it. You just have to carry on and ignore it. But for her, it was different. I'm just struck that sometimes it's children that God uses to open our eyes to see the world the way that he does. Our hearts need to change. They're not very healthy they're out of step with, with the beating heart of God. <clears throat> okay, now it's all been quite serious so far, hasn't it? So I think it's time for a joke. You look like you need a joke. <laughs> and you can breathe, it's okay. <laughs> um, so here we go. It's probably going to disappoint you now. But there was a man who was very unwell who went to see his doctor. And his doctor performed a whole lot of tests on him and basically came back to him and said, Look, Unless you make some serious changes in your life, you're not going to live more than another month. You need to go back and tell your wife that she needs to cook you more, more nutritious meals. That you need to stop working like a dog. You need to get, get a budget together and you need to make sure that, that you, but especially your wife, that, that she's going to help you both stick to it and tell your wife to get your kids off the back so when you come home from work, you can just rest and sit back and read the newspaper. Otherwise, you'll be dead in a month. Now, this patient um, says, do you know, doctor, 
I think all of that might be better coming from you <laughs> rather than me. <laughs> Would you mind calling and speaking to my wife? So the doctor says, oh, okay, I'll do that. So the doctor calls, speaks to, to, to the man's wife. The man kind of gets home and he meets his wife. And the wife says to him, I've just spoken to your doctor. Poor man, you've only got 30 days left to live. <laughs> okay, feeling better? <laughs> You're all right? There's a little bit of a point to the story in that really that this man takes almost no responsibility for his need to change. It's like, my wife's going to do it, or the doctor's going to do it. What about him? Hey? What about him making some significant changes in his life? And when we do want to make changes, often they're superficial. You know, we want to just a few plasters, maybe a little bandage here. Uh, we don't want to go through the whole open heart surgery thing. Well, that is so what the Israelites were doing when they went to visit this shrine in Bethel. Bethel was known as the place of transformation. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 28 and 35, God meets with this man called Jacob. Jacob means schemer, deceiver. And Jacob is rightly called that because he is on the run when he gets to Bethel for the first time from his brother who he's basically just, just cheated out of his birthright. Jacob's a con man. He's a criminal. And he comes to this place of, of Bethel. He meets with God there. God in his mercy and grace comes and meets with this scheming Jacob. And Jacob arrives as a man with a past but leaves as a man with a future. Then in Genesis chapter 35, he's back. He is anxious and concerned because he's got to go back to meet Esau, the man that he defrauded. And he's worried about how that's going to work out. And God in his grace meets with him again. And he wrestles with God in prayer. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And a transformation happens. God changes him. Changes his heart. And he's no longer to be called Jacob, but Israel. There's a new name, a new kind of nature transformation happening. God gives him a limp that he might walk, I think, with humility, with repentance, a walk of repentance hence forward. You see, the place of Bethel was known. In this place, this is where God takes the old and he brings the new. There's, there's transformation happening. But the people of Israel, this group of ten tribes in the north, they were going down to this place thinking that the place did all the work rather than wanting to meet with the God who brings transformation. And so if you look in verses 8 and 9, Amos is revealing the God of awesome transforming power. God changes the seasons. He describes the constellations, the Pleiades, Orion. God is in control of changing the day, night and day. God is in control of unexpected events like floods. God is in control even over national changes and empire changes and regime changes. He's the God of awesome power and transformation. Yet you don't want to go to him to be changed. You just want a superficial makeover. The Israelites, they thought they were kind of okay. Maybe they just lost their shine a little bit. They needed to go to God maybe just because they needed a little bit of polish on them. There wasn't anything deeper wrong in their hearts. I wonder if we're a little bit similar to that. That we can often approach God unaware of theologically what we would call our total depravity. 
or our, our pervasive depravity. Not that we are the worst, most evil people on the planet, but every part of us is contaminated by sin and rebellion against God, that we deserve his judgment. Do we come to him wanting a little polished, little sticky plasters, or to say, hey, we need his defibrillator paddles on our hearts because we are dead in sin and need to be made alive in Christ? Israel didn't really want to know God as a person. They just wanted his benefits. It's a bit like someone today who just marries for money. There's no love. It's convenient. And boy, were they missing out. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a great convert. He's an atheist. He became a believer. And he says that they're effectively just like ignorant children, content making mud plies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. God is the pearl of great price. Knowing him is everything. Being in relationship with him is the most precious thing in this world. Being transformed to become more like him is the very meaning of our existence. He is everything and he is glorious and he is full of love and he is full of grace and beauty. How would you not want to know him and be changed to become more like him? And what's so amazing is that God is saying to this group in Israel, they were so ugly, they were trampling on the heads of the poor. They were destroying others, forcing them to give, the poor to give them grain. It's awful what they were doing. And yet God said, I've got mercy for you. I've got grace for you. Seek me and you'll live. Wow. That means however bad you think you are, however wrong you think you've done, whatever you think you've done that's, that could exclude you or separate you or that God could never love you, you're wrong because if he loved those people, boy, he can love you. There's grace, there's mercy, there's hope. The Christian faith is not about being a good person. It's about God having been that good person for you so that you can try somehow to live up to that, but you don't need to earn your way there. It's all given to you. There's hope for every one of us. Twice he puts it in verses 4 and verse 6. Seek me, God is saying. Seek God and live. And live. In, in the Hebrew, that's what we call an, an imperative. And that means it's a promise that God is guaranteeing. Seek me, and I, I promise you, you will really live. We see the fulfillment of that in Jesus. That God comes and he literally donates his life to us so that we can live. God in Jesus becomes the victim of injustice. Dying on the cross, not because he's a criminal, but because he's taking our sin upon him so that he can destroy injustice forever. And in this act of love that he's taking the penalty that we deserve, we are meant to see and experience something of his beauty and his grace that melts our hearts into an obedient shape.
This is God's offer to us today. God knows injustice from the inside out. His heart beats for justice. If we get close to him, we'll become more like him. We'll start to care about what he cares about. And one of the ways to draw close to God is to pray, is to meet with him in prayer and to pray, God, change my heart. God, my heart's not right. God, I've cared about the wrong things. God, I'm sorry. Tune, tune, tune me in again. Is to accept the truth of our transgression, but to know that his grace triumphs over judgment. That's the first point. The second is Bathsheba. Seek good. Pray for divine presence empowerment. Bathsheba was the place where God met with Abraham and then he said twice to Jacob, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. That's what this place, this shrine became known for. And it's interesting then in verse 14 of chapter 5 that we, we see that God's promising that, that, that I am with you statement there again. So this is all about Bathsheba, this, this section here. And what was happening is that the people from Israel in the north again, they were pilgrimaging down and Bathsheba was a long way south presuming that they go to this place that God will be present with them. That they can say, oh, God's with me. He's with me. But God wasn't with them. Because God is with the broken. God is with the downtrodden. God is with the poor. God is with the victims of injustice. And you want to walk with God and know his presence. That's where God is and we need to walk with him. To walk with God really means to, I think, to work out justice. You can't walk with God and not work out justice. So what does that mean to you? What, what could that look like? Seeking good. Or oh, I want to say that it could look like getting involved in adoption. That's courageously what Mike and Becky Tan are doing in our church. Becky was singing on the stage. Mike leads our worship team. And I'm announcing that really on their behalf because I want us to get behind them 100% in that. Seeking good could mean, as it's done for one person, to change their working hours, to go and try and renegotiate with their boss. Now, I'd like to work and serve in the food bank at my church. You know, it's a charity. It's doing a great work. It's feeding over 100 people every month in crisis in the area. And so I've, they're only operating open to the public on a, on a Monday and a Thursday. Is there any way I can reshape my working hours to do that? And they've done that and they're serving. We need help in our food bank. We need more people like that who can give up time to come and serve. Because I tell you, there's more than 100 people who need food every month in this area. There's way more than that. What could it look like for you? There's a table just going to be over there for the food banks. If you want to find out more, you can. Go and talk to... The team there, speak to Heather, she's on staff, she leads it, she's doing a fantastic job, but she'd really appreciate your support and encouragement. See, sadly, the people of Israel, they put personal greed and self-preservation ahead of really seeking God's presence. 
They stayed silent instead of speaking out against injustice. And so they missed out really on the presence of God. But God is generous and he's saying, if you seek good, I'll be with you. I won't let you down. In verse 15, he makes the statement that he will be gracious or merciful, I think with his presence, because he refers to that in verse 14, to the remnant of Joseph. That's one of those little kind of like clues, little hyperlinks back to Genesis here, 39. Joseph, what's his story? What his story is that through difficulty, through the prison, through the pit, through wrong accusations against him, through dark times, it just keeps saying in the narrative of his life, and God was with Joseph, 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 and God's presence with him brought favor, even when it looked so dark, so bleak, so difficult. He kept faithful. He kept going until one day God opens a door for him to become the second most powerful man in the world, arguably at that time, to establish the first mega food bank, to feed thousands upon thousands and thousands of lives, to save people, and to ensure that his wider family is saved so that the purposes of God will continue. Wow. God will be with you even when times go dark. If you seek good, if you put that before your own personal wants, God will be with you. He's generous with his presence. In the New Testament age, we see that in Pentecost the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about. And he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's the challenge for us. Will we pray with expectation, asking for the Holy Spirit, asking for his presence to empower us to seek good? The final shrine is Gilgal. Let justice roll. It's about praying for strength to work out what God has worked in us already. See, there's a temptation that you can just sit back and say, well, I could just rest on my role. I I, I served. I've already served in the food bank. Thanks. I've done my time. I I was part of this breakthrough in the past. You know, I've done, I I need a break. You know, it's been tough for me um, right now, but I've done my bit. That's what Israel was doing as well. They were kind of arrogantly assuming that they had the same faith as their ancestors. See, Gilgal was a memorial place. A place where they went back to remember that this is the moment, the place and the moment where they went through the Jordan River into the Promised Land and began a great victory in the conquest of that area beginning with Jericho. See, and many, many years later, it was if, yeah, I was part of that. I did that. That's me. I I get their faith. And so when the day of the Lord that's written about in the passage is going to come, they're like, we're going to be okay because we're part of this people and we did that. And because they did that, that means we did that as well. And we're going to be all right when, when this day of reckoning and accountability for the way that you've lived comes. But oh boy, were they wrong. If any of them were genuinely believers in God, they would have been saved, but only as through the fire, with very, very little to show in response to what God had done for them. 
And God uses strong words about their behavior. Showing up at festivals, singing songs, engaging in worship. He doesn't just say, I don't like it. He says, I hate it. I hate all this stuff that you're doing. This sort of worship is false to me. It's hypocritical, he says, because the worship I want to see is justice. There's a very interesting wordplay here happening around this place, Gilgal. Gilgal got its name, Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. And it's the place where it says that God rolled away the reproach of Egypt from the people of God at that time. Gilgal kind of in Hebrew sounds a bit like rolled away. So you see, what God had done is he was saying, he's rolled away their reproach, their guilt, their shame, their sin over their idolatry when they were in slavery and tyranny under, under Egypt, but they'd compromised some of their faith and it had, it, had, it had made them ugly and not beautiful in the right way again, and they knew that. But there was also the stigma of slavery. And they got to this place now where they were coming into the promised land and God saying, I have rolled all of that away. You're a new creation now. Now I want you to go into that promised land and do to others what they've done, what I've done to you. To set them free. To bring justice. To release people from slavery. But they didn't. They were concerned about building their own houses and their mansions and getting rich and all the excitement that that could have gone on. It was a time of peace and prosperity, you see, and the neighboring empires, Assyria and Egypt, they were in decline and this nation, they were advancing their boundaries and bringing in pagan bits of worship and they brought hold of the the trade routes which are now cashing in on with just like a carefree policy. The economy in Israel was booming and they thought, oh, God is with us because we've got so much money. Surely he's blessing us in this. Without realizing that so much of their wealth was actually off the backs of the poor who they were now exploiting with cynical opportunism. And so God says in verse 24, and note the wordplay parallel, what he wants, he says, is to let justice roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And for those who simply by faith in Jesus, we get to have all of our past rolled away. All of the reproach, all of the guilt, all of the sin, all of the shame gets rolled away just by by putting faith in Jesus, not by doing good works or anything like that, but just by trusting him. God has come in Jesus Christ to roll away the stone, like he rolled away the stone of the empty tomb for Jesus, to reveal that it's empty, that Jesus is alive, that he's gone, that, that his offering for sin and dying for the sin of the world has been accepted by God, and now we can be free simply by faith in Him. And He gives us a new heart. And He says, I'll put my presence on you and in you and with you. Everywhere you set your foot, I want you to bring my presence, my glory with you. Work for justice to reveal my character. That's what God wants because God has a dream. God has a dream for the homeless. 
God has a dream for the broken. God has a dream for the disillusioned. God has a dream for the rough sleepers. God has a dream for politics. God has a dream for the arts, for the film industry. God has a dream for your neighborhood. God has a dream for your workplace because God has a dream for your life and God has a dream for his church. God has a dream for Westminster Chapel. And it's to take nobodies and to make them somebodies for his glory. God has a dream for this place. I tell you, I have a dream for this place. I believe it's God's dream that we would see hundreds of lives transformed. That people would meet with the living God in power and be changed. That we would be involved in starting and establishing and restarting churches all over the city of London and even beyond. I have a dream. I have a dream that this place would be filled. Be filled by a beautiful, diverse group of people, all ages, every walk of life, passionately in love with Jesus, giving their all for him. I have a dream that one day people from Parliament will come and they'll say, we need help. You're doing something here that's just amazing. We can't do what you're doing. Would you help us? And we'll get a moment to say, yes, but do you know how we're doing it? It's because of Jesus. I have a dream for that day. I've not given up hope on this church. I would want to do what Israel did and say, other days were great. When Reverend Samuel Martin was here and this church was just 20 people, and over 20 years it grew to over 1,000, they had to knock down the original building to build this church. And an area, Old Pie Street, just a little bit further away, Charles Dickens called the Devil's Acre. It was so awful. It was just entrenched poverty and crime and drugs. It was horrible. But this church played a role in transforming the area. And God was glorified. But I tell you, that's nothing compared to what he wants to do. Yeah, we could go back to the days of Lloyd-Jones and say those were the glory days. Super exegetical preaching, preaching center, books being written, going out around the world, being quoted in every sermon here, there, and everywhere. And they were great days. But I tell you, God wants to do something more. Or we could look back to the days of Dr. R.T. Kendall here and word and spirit ministry coming together in a beautiful way and the power and the presence of God here and sound teaching. And that was great and wonderful. But I tell you, God wants to do something more in our day, in our generation, that we should be expectant for, that we should be seeking and pressing in for with hope and anticipation, not disqualifying ourselves because we're not good enough because we're nobodies, but saying he can use anybody because it's about him, his glory, and his power. And he's doing something in our day where we will not look back and say there's that famous person and that famous person. And people will say the name that we remember in this place is the name of Jesus. He's the name above every name because they look at our lives and say, that doesn't make sense. It's impossible without God. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by his Holy Spirit. Let's press for more. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you so much that you're so generous with your love and your grace and your mercy. And we would say, come.
Lord, and change our hearts. Lord, forgive us for all of the superficiality. Forgive us for all the ritual. Lord, without the real relationship with you. Lord, forgive us for that low view of sin and therefore a low view of your grace. Lord, we want to see the depths of our injustice that we might see the greater heights and width and breadth of your unfathomable love and grace in this place. And Lord, we're asking for your spirit to come in presence to empower us, to transform us, to change us from one degree of glory to another as we behold Jesus dying for us and now risen, empowering his church to go out as an army of people that justice would roll down in every street, in every byway, into every office. Lord, the river of your spirit. Lord, we're praying that Ezekiel 47 vision, Lord, of the river of life coming from the temple and flowing out in increasing power into the Dead Sea, bringing life where it seems to be impossible and there's nothing but death. Lord, bring life, Lord. Thank you that you said, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. And Lord, we want to drink today as we worship you. Lord, we want to drink that rivers of living water might flow out of us individually and together as a church to change this city of London. For all those who are thirsty for justice, that we might quench their thirst, Lord God. We say, let your kingdom come. Let justice roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.